This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem Wa qala ya baniya la tadukhulu min babin wahidin wa dukhulu min abwabin متفرقه وما اغني عنكم من الله من شيء ان الحكم الا لله عليه توكلت وعليه فليتوكل المتوكلون ولما دخلوا من حيث امرهم ابوهم ما كان يغني عنهم من الله من شيء الا حاجه في نفس يعقوب قضاها وانه لذو علم علمناه ولكن اكثر الناس لا يعلمون رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي فالحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اما بعد once again everyone السلام عليكم ورحمه الله تعالى وبركاته so today uh, what i want to do um, and i want to share with you what i want to do today and also a game plan moving into the future inshallah is i'm going to pick up from where we left off i was going to do a little bit of reading and try to contemplate on the concept of the evil eye if you remember uh, and really think about these ayat some more before I continued. And I did that over the weekend and uh, had the benefit of uh, speaking with Dr. Akram Nadwi and asking him this question also. And he promised to you know, put his thoughts together and he prefers to put things in writing and then send them to me. So I'm grateful that he did send me something and I'll share that with you today, inshallah, when the time comes. But um, basically what I want to talk to you about is the approach that I'm going to be taking. There are, there are two separate issues and I want to make sure that they remain separate. One is the tafsir and the interpretation of, let's just call it 67 and 68, these two ayat, where he's telling his son, Yaqub is telling his sons, alayhi salam, to not go into the city from one gate, but to go into it from different gates, right? That's what we're talking about. And then Allah responding to that, that that wouldn't have benefited them in any way, shape, or form, and that discussion, right? And we've talked about that. We've had one session about that, and I'm gonna. this will be the second session about that. But I'll be leveraging what Dr. Akram wrote for the most part and reading through it to help you appreciate that, inshallah. Uh, the second issue is the issue of the evil eye because it has been interpreted. One of its interpretations is the evil eye. But the evil eye itself is a, is a broad topic. There are lots of narrations, hadith literature, other literature uh, surrounding it. So it's a pretty big subject by itself. And I came to the conclusion along with uh, my colleague uh, Sohib Saeed that it's best that we leave that off as a separate discussion on its own instead of diving too deep into it here. Because even though it's a tangential issue from here, it's too big of a topic. It'll take us away from the surah itself. So I'm going to continue with the series on the surah. Dr. Akram promised me to write something about the evil eye. And maybe that will spawn a series of questions from you guys. Uh, in, when, and I will invite those questions when the time comes, not right now, so pay attention, not right now, but when the time comes, I'll invite those questions, incorporate them, perhaps have him write something even more, or maybe even have a live session with him, chat with him, and have you guys attend that session, inshallah, if he's open to it. Um, he's theoretically open to it, but we'll see when the time comes. No promises yet. But in any case, let's come back to the ayat at hand. Let me translate them once again for you, and then 
I'll walk you through what uh, you know what was sent to me, and I'm very honored that he wrote that for me. Alhamdulillah, and for all of your benefit, of course. So Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. ya baniya, and there's a mistake I made in the last session. I said bani is ism tasghir. It is not. That would be bunaya, my little son. Baniya is from banina. It's the jama' mudakkar salim. So that was a you know lapse of my you know grammar. So baniya just means my sons. So he said, my sons, la tadkhulu min babin wahidin. Do not enter from a single gate. Wadkhulu min abwabin mutafarriqatin. And enter, rather enter from multiple or different gates. وَمَا أُغْنِيَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ شَيْءٍ And I cannot make you independent from Allah in any way, shape or form. Which means I cannot give you benefit that can only come from Allah. Or nothing I do will make you so uh, safe that you no longer need safety from Allah. That's the idea of igna. Igna means you've made someone independent where they don't need nobody else. Right? Allah, one of Allah's names is Ghani. That Allah is not in need of anyone else. In modern Arabic, the word Ghani became used for someone who's rich. But actually behind it isn't money. Behind it is the idea that someone who's rich doesn't need anybody else. Like people need his or her wealth. They don't need anybody else's money. That's that's kind of the idea behind dhu mal becoming aghani, right? But actually, the and, and in classical Arabic also, alaghniya, you know, it, the independence was associated with wealth because with wealth came a kind of independence. I can live where I want. I can buy what I want. That kind of thing, right? But as a verb, it means to give to to give somebody independence. And from it also, for example, is istirna. Istirna in Arabic as a verb is used for when you don't need anybody. Or you're not dependent on anybody. Right? The dignity of a person is they don't they're not dependent on anybody else. So being independent is part of one's dignity. It's an you know old saying. So when he says, Ma min he's saying, whatever I do is not going to a, a, a basic, a distant, but kind of catches the idea. Translation would be, I can't benefit you instead of Allah in any way. Or I can't benefit you against Allah's decree in any way. But it's more than benefit. I can't make you independent. I may I can't make you someone who won't need any other source of protection other than me. You know, and I can't give you any benefit that is only can only come from Allah in any way, shape, or form. So even though I'm telling you to take this precaution, that is not a substitute of your dependence on Allah. This is an important concept because sometimes people in different religions, Islam included, or some strands of Islam included. Muslims or Christians or Hindus, anybody, they start becoming very dependent on not the not Allah, not God, but symbols, right? And the symbols are what's going to protect me. So I'm wearing like an ayatul kursi chain, and that's why no truck is going to hit me when it's raining on the highway, because the symbol. It's not Allah protecting me; it's this amulet that's protecting me, or it's the copy of the Quran in the dashboard that's protecting me. Right or you know uh, they'll have not they don't put Bibles in hotel rooms for people to read, but yeah the idea is the room is blessed and you're safe now. They'll put it in the you know old old hotel rooms that put Bibles inside them, right? Or people will put artwork and you know remembrances of Allah not for the purpose of remembering Allah. That would be a great thing, right? But people do weird things. They'll take portions of ayat of the Quran like alif lam mim kaf haya ain sad ha you know ha mim. The huruf muqatta'at at the beginning of the surahs, those letters, right? They'll make a grid of them and put all those letters and put them on the fridge. That way the bananas won't expire so quickly, right? Or something <laughs> like the idea is somehow this is going to this is gonna protect, this measure that we're going to take. The thing is, ironically, a lot of these symbols, these sha'air, their purpose was to teach us to only depend on Allah. 
And the irony is sometimes these symbols are what people depend on more than actually Allah or instead of Allah. Even instead of Allah. This is why somebody will go to the Kaaba, the Kaaba that has no shu'ur, it has no consciousness, it's not a living thing. The Kaaba is a piece of stone. Umar bin al-Khattab would go to it before he kisses the black stone and say, I know you're nothing but a stone. You can't help me. You can't harm me. But I kiss you because my Prophet did. But that's what he'll say to this piece of stone. That's what it is. But people will go there and they will, you know, body slam the Kaaba and kind of rubbing themselves on it. Or they'll take, they'll, you know, stash scissors and they'll cut out a piece of the ghilaf, the, you know, the, the, the covering on the Kaaba and then take it home and put it in a special place and kind of Whenever they have a problem, they hold that and make dua or something. Weird stuff. But this is, this is going way beyond what anything that Yaqub was saying. But the idea from it is we can take certain measures. right? But those measures, even if you're t- talking about protecting from evil eye, those measures do not make you safe. It's Allah that makes you safe. That's Allah that makes you safe. And Allah, even if you take the idea that this, there's some validity to taking precautions or protecting yourself from evil eye. Because, you know, I read different kinds of articles on the subject and, you know, one of them did talk about how you should not be so exposed, right? You should not, if you have something good going on, you just got a nice car or you got a promotion or something like that, don't talk to too many people about it, right? Just kind of not make it so obvious or don't put so many pictures of yourself online, you'll catch the evil eye, that kind of thing, right? Or you'll, so you don't want the attention of people on the blessings you're enjoying, Right? And that's a classical, actually, bit of advice. Early scholars talked about this advice to protect yourself from evil eye. But even if you do, even if you, you know, uh, earned a great bonus and you got a couple of million dollars or whatever, or you have the nicest car and you keep it in the garage and nobody's outside going to see it or catch the evil eye, that doesn't mean you're safe. Safety still comes from Allah. You see? So that's just one dimension of your... And it's something you feel... Just like Yaqub it can be attributed is something he felt inside him. Illa hajatan fi nafsi That's it. That's pretty much the you know the, the story behind it. But anyway, so that's the, go back to translating. Makana yuhni anhu min Allahi min shay. Illa hajatan. Actually, no, that's the next ayah. Inil hukmu illa lillah. The verdict belongs with Allah and Allah alone, with no one else. The decision in the end is Allah's and Allah's alone. And then he says, Alayhi tawakkaltu. On Him alone do I rely. I'm not relying on you going from different doors working out things for you. That's just a measure I want you to take, but it is not take is it's not a substitute for my exclusive reliance on Allah. I need you to understand that. I'm not going to be thinking, well they went through different doors and still something didn't work out, still they caught the that's not how I think. Alayhi tawakkaltu wa alayhi Beautiful phrase, once again we return to it. Those who are going to rely should rely on him. So he's making a general comment now. And what is behind that general comment? What is behind that general comment is a truth about a lot of people in virtually any religion and also in our religion, in Islam. And in the religion of Islam from the time of Yaqub sometimes people become more reliant on secondary things and they forget the primary. They let go of the primary. So for example, some of you think that you have the evil eye. Somebody did ayin on you, you went to a party, you look really nice, and ever since then you've had acne. And that's it. There's an evil eye on that. Look, listen, you ate too much chocolate. That's why you have acne. But anyway, let's just say somebody looked at you the wrong way. And that's why you're popping out everywhere and all of that, right? Now you got to find someone to read Quran on you. And you better find someone whose beard is long enough for it to work. And they better have really checked them for COVID first. But they have a, you know, get it off of you. Hold on a second. You're a slave of Allah. 
You don't need another slave of Allah to, to bring Allah's protection to you. You know, some Qari or someone else. Allah gave every believer the Qur'an. Allah gave every believer the dhikr, the remembrance of Allah. Allah gave you the ability to remember Him. And if there is an evil eye on you, you believe so. He gave you Surah Al-Falaq, and He gave you Surah Al-Nas, He gave you Ayat Al-Kursi, He gave you the Fatiha. He didn't give it to a Hafiz of the Qur'an only, that you go to Him, like you go to a pharmacy, and say, I need a prescription, go recite this for me. That's not, that's not what this religion is. You can do that yourself. You're directly answerable to Allah. You have, Allah didn't hand some people the solutions that you go to. Allah gave you access to those solutions. Yes, when there's a matter of knowledge. When there's something you don't know, you go to people who know better than you. But when it comes to remembering Allah, you don't go to someone who remembers Allah better than you. Allah has given every heart the opportunity to connect them. Some hearts are not more qualified than other hearts. Some minds can be more qualified, absolutely. I don't get something. I don't understand something. I need some wisdom. I'll go to somebody with you know more years behind them, more knowledge behind them, more experience behind them. I'll go to them. But when it comes to my own remembrance of Allah, I don't need another person for that. Or protection for, from Allah Azza wa I want that protection from Allah. I don't need to go to someone who will recite something for me and then I'll be protected. Or somebody else will give me a prescription. And you know, th this kind of thing, you know, it, it makes its way into the ummah in strange ways. So for example, when somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant, could you tell me what to recite? Or you know, when my wife is in delivery, what should I be reciting? Oh, recite Surah Maryam. That's going to work. Because you know, there's a delivery in the surah. So recite Surah Maryam which has no authentic basis that, that that's a tradition to do. But we make a correlation, right? This lady's going to have a baby, and Maryam Salamun Aliha had a baby, so this should work out well. Except you're, she's in delivery, about to give birth, and she's reciting, she's hearing the recitation of a woman who gave birth, who wished that she was dead before this day came. And this was one of the worst, most difficult days of her life, that Allah tested her more than any other test in her entire life. And then when she had this baby, she was publicly humiliated, there is a little bit of a, <laughs> like Allah made that happen, but also there are other elements to that narrative and those ayat that don't correspond with what you want in your situation, right? So we, and, and what happens? Well, the delivery will go well if you do this, if you do this. And I've, I don't think you'll find more of an advocate and there are, but I'm a very strong advocate of, of every believer having a strong connection with the Qur'an. But when the Qur'an itself is turned into an amulet, when the Qur'an recitation itself is just turned into just sounds that will protect you, and those sounds can protect you, but if it's been reduced to that, it's a crime. That's It came actually to remove this kind of thinking. To get rid of, and this is, he's not allowing that kind of thinking to enter into the minds of his sons, immediately he says, I place my trust in him, and any who is going to rely should rely exclusively on Allah Azza wa Jal. And by the way, I'll say something, some of you might find this, you know, uh, uh, controversial, doesn't matter. Here's what, what you need to understand. When you need to remember Allah in your time of need, and you don't know any Arabic, and you don't know any Quran, and you didn't memorize any special du'as, you can still remember Allah and Allah will still protect you. You can even remember Allah in Portuguese. Or in Punjabi, or in Saraiki, or in Bahasa. Allah knows all those languages. He kind of made them. He's the owner of all languages. You have in the Quran young men in Surah Al Kahf who don't have any knowledge of scripture. They just turn to God in whatever language they know. They just they just turn to Him. They sincere Allah is not interested in what comes off the tongue. Allah wants what's coming out of the heart. Illa manat Allah bi qalbin salim. Ibrahim alayhi salam is having profound 
discoveries about Allah before revelation comes to him. Before revelation. Revelation is there to teach us how to connect to Allah. And these words have sacred power. But if you start thinking that without these words you have no connection to Allah, then you're wrong. Then you're absolutely wrong. And that's, a, that's not the right way to think about our deen. You know, it, it, and it doesn't take away the sacredness of these words. But if that fundamental connection to Allah isn't there, then you don't appreciate that these words that Allah has given us only reinforce that connection that's already there. وَقَدْ أَخَذَ مِيثَاقَكُمْ The mithaq has already been taken from you. The light has already been put inside you. This is nurun ala nur. This is the light on top of that light. This isn't the only light. The light already exists. So sometimes when we don't understand that, we even start misusing represent, you know, re- revelation. And may not realize it. May Allah protect us from doing so. And when they entered from where their dad had instructed them, their father had instructed them, It wasn't going to make them independent from needing Allah in any way, shape, or form. Allah is repeating what Yaqub said. I told you that last time too. Except for a need in the inside of Yusuf, in the person of Yusuf that he dealt with. That he did away with, meaning he had to fulfill this need that he had inside him to tell him to tell them to go from different doors. This is where the interpretation comes. What's this need inside him? And the interpretation has been the need to protect from evil eyes, right? We'll explore that a little deeper today. And he certainly is someone, truly someone who possesses great knowledge that we have taught him. However, most people have no knowledge at all. They don't, they don't know what kind of knowledge we've given him. He's got some profound knowledge that Allah has taught him. Now, this is a rough translation of the ayat. On the subject of the evil eye, what I'm going to do to you, do with you guys now, is I'm going to read to you what Dr. Akram so graciously sent to me. So if you can show that on the screen. Um, this kind of gave me the giggles because he mentioned me by name in this article. He didn't just send it to me, he posted it. So, this, And I'll read the Arabic and I'll translate this for you guys so you guys can see it, inshallah, you can appreciate the, the work that he's put into it. Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. Not translating that. Tafsiru ya bani ya babin wahid. The explanation or the interpretation of my sons don't enter from a single gate. Biqalam Dr. Muhammad Akram Nadwi by the pen of Dr. Akram Nadwi, Oxford, in Oxford. Warada ilayya su'al min qibatil bahithil Qur'ani al ma'roof al ustav Nurman Ali Khan al muqim fil wilayat al mutahidah al amrikiya. So he says, a question was posed to me from. Uh, the famous Quran researcher, Ustad Muhammad Ali Khan, living in the United States. I was like, oh, he knows my name. <laughs> I was geeking out with my friend. Look, he wrote my name in an article. Man, I'm famous. What? Okay, anyway. Uh, about the interpretation of the words of Yaqub, my sons don't come in from a single door. And enter from multiple doors or different doors. Along with a, a, a you know a, a, an analysis of different opinions in the past, early scholarship in regards to this matter. So he says, I asked him to give me a survey of how this was thought about and how this was you know analyzed. Before I continue to read, I want you to know there's a methodology in scholarly writing. I am not scholarly. He certainly is. So here's the methodology in scholarly writing. Before you present your opinion, you present the opinions that you have read and that you've studied. You present all views that you've come across, right? And you you look at that so that, first of all, what that does for your reader 
is it for a scholarly reader, it informs the, the reader that the person who's about to present their opinion is not oblivious to these other opinions. They didn't just come up with their opinion and ignored, and they, they must not have read whatever. Now, I don't do that in my lectures. Sometimes I do, but most of the times I'll present what I find most convincing. And I don't present all the opinions that I have read and compare them because that's a different kind of study. That's the, the comparative tafsir kind of study. I'll get to the what, what I understand to be the most compelling argument for the most part. And even if I do present the alternative view, it'll be just kind of bunching together a you know overall kind of a bird's eye view of the opposing views and present that to you, but not quoting every single person who said it. You understand? Now what that can lead someone to say, well, he didn't mention this other view, so he must not know it. So let me just Google it and tell him, hey, you missed one. It's not because I missed one. And I may have, but it's not, I don't mention it because that's not the purpose of this particular series. My, my goal in this series and, and the, the series of a deeper look at the Quran that I'm trying to do over the next decade is to do the study and then present some of what I find as, as deep as I can, but not come across as a geeky exercise, not come across as an intellectual exercise. This is not for tafsir students. This is for the general public that may not be engaged in the study of tafsir. So these names may not be relevant for them. But they still they still should have access to some of the lessons that have been discussed and some of this deeper material. So I consider myself kind of a filter between academic sources and popular discussion, right? And just because you're speaking in easy language doesn't mean that you don't you shouldn't have the scholarly backing. But the problem is if I take the scholarly backing and start talking about it in scholarly language, then you guys will have the best sleep of your lives. Some of you already do while I talk. But that, that will be like coma state, right? But for, and that would be really cool for people that are studying in the Islamic universities or have graduated or, you know, people that are into, you know, ulum tafsir and, you know, tafsir al-muqara and those sciences of Quran study. That would be a really cool discussion for them, but it wouldn't be relevant for all of you, which is why I'm not doing i'rab of the ayat or discussing the judur of every word, the, the, the roots of every word, etc. There's a time and place for that sometimes, but my primary agenda is tashil, is how do you make this easy to, to grasp uh, and get to the point? But what he wrote for me is a scholarly piece, right? Relatively scholarly. He, when he puts something out on WhatsApp, that's his way of watering things down. So he's way deeper than this. This is his watered down, what I'm about to read to you. And you'll hear a lot of repetition, and I'll tell you at the end why, okay? So now listen up. Al-Jawab. قال الإمام أبو جعفر الطبري في تفسيره يقول تعالى ذكره قال يعقوب لبنيه لما لما أرادوا الخروج من عنده إلى مصر ليتمروا الطعام يا بني لا تدخلوا مصر من طريق واحد وادخلوا من أبواب متفرقة. إمام أبو جعفر الطبري in his interpretation, in his in his commentary on the Quran, says that Allah whose name should be mentioned in the highest way. Um, says that Yaqub said to his sons when they left uh, from him to head towards Egypt to get food, my sons don't enter Egypt from a single pathway, enter from different gates. And then he mentioned that he said that to them. Uh, and he said that to them because these were men that possessed beauty and good form. They were strong, well-built men and good-looking men. فَخَافَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْعَيْنِ So he was afraid of the evil eye to fall upon them. إِذَا دَخَلُوا جَمَعَةً مِنْ طَرِيقٍ وَاحِدٍ If they were to enter 
as a group together that would catch too much attention and that's why he said it and they are the sons of a single father meaning wow one father all these sons that's a strong family that's the kind of idea right because in ancient times sons were strength right now having too many children is like you have that many kids why but back then the more kids you have the stronger you are right so he instructed them to diversify themselves in entering the city, meaning break up. Don't go as one group, break up and go from different gates. And this has been transmitted from some of the earlier scholars also, or even earlier predecessors. Uh, and then, then also, of course, narrated from the Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma. That Yaqub feared the evil eye. وعن محمد بن كعب and محمد بن كعب narrates قال خشية عليهم العين he said he feared the evil eye for them وعن قتادة قتادة says خشية نبي نبي الله صلى الله عليه وسلم العين على بنيه um, that uh, Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم himself used to fear the evil eye for his sons and he's referring to his grandsons Hassan and Hussein there's a narration about that that he gave them some adhkar and said this is what Ibrahim السلام, used to say to Ismail and Ishaq we'll get to that when we do the narration discussion on العين وَجَمَالًا They possessed good, you know, beauty and they were good looking. وَقَالَ الضَّحَّاكَ خَافَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْعَيْنِ الضَّحَّاكَ These are early names. This is first, second generation names. الضَّحَّاكَ says he feared the evil eye for them. وَعَنْ إِبْنِ إِسْحَاقَ And Ibn Ishaq, uh, from Ibn Ishaq, قَالَ خَشِيَ عَلَيْهِمْ أَعْيُنَ النَّاسِ لِهَيْئَتِهِمْ وَأَنَّهُمْ لِرَجُلٍ وَاحِدٍ That he feared for them the eyes falling, the evil eyes falling on, of, of, of people falling on them because of their form and because they are of a single father. قَالَ الزَّمَخْشَرِي فِي الْكَشَّافِ Zamakhshari says in his kashaf, إِنَّمَا نَهَاهُمْ أَنْ يَدْخُلُوا مِنْ بَابٍ وَاحِدٍ He only prevented them from going from a single, or, or prohibited them from going from a single gate. لِأَنَّهُمْ كَانُوا ذَوِي بَهَاءٍ وَشَارَةٍ حَسَنًا Because they were uh, a, sight to, a sight. And they were pretty glorious to look at. اِشْتَهْرَهُمْ أَهْلُ مِصْرَبٍ And he adds something now. So this is new. So Zamakhshari is adding something that we haven't read thus far. Um, so he says, "Ishtaharahum ahlu Misra bil Qurba and al Maliki wa Takrimat al Khasa alati lamtakun li ghairihim." He says that that glory and that you know that appeal they had made them made them famous uh, among the people of Egypt also because of their closeness to the king and the honor, the special honor that he gave them that he didn't give to others. So this is lending itself to not something that Dr. Akram wrote, but something I want to explain to you guys. When Yusuf السلام, called them, asked them questions, said, you have a brother that's, not from, that's from your father, bring him to me. Some scholars, including Zamakhshari, interpreted that to mean that they must have been so impressive. Or he, Yusuf السلام, made it look like they're so impressive, I want to meet the whole family. right? So he gave them this special kind of attention, and they interpreted that encounter as such. That they got this special hospitality and attention that other groups didn't get. And so that's kind of playing into that interpretation is playing into how they're going to look at this multiple gate theory, right? So the so what's the kind of underlying idea? The underlying idea is Yusuf found them very impressive. And if the highest, the second in command in the country finds you impressive, the country finds you impressive, right? So that's why this interpretation is going to follow. As a point of disclaimer, um, myself, I'm not convinced of that particular view only because the conversation that happened between them and Yusuf السلام, was not entirely positive. He said, don't come with him and you'll not, not, you're not going to get a single load from me. 
and you better not come near me. That doesn't sound like they were honored. You know, that sounds like I've taken care of you, but you better not be lying to me. You claim you have a brother, you better prove it. Bring him with you. Right, so that doesn't sound to me like takrima, but that has been interpreted that way. It's not coming from Rasulullah, so there's room for disagreement here. But anyway, and that's why they became some an object of you know people looking at them, you know, with, with vying eyes. So people would say, Man, I wish I had that kind of attention from the vice president. They look at the kind of, you know, and from all the wufud, meaning all the foreigners that came, they got the top treatment. So all the foreigners are looking at them, man, how come they get to go in front of the line? They got they got hooked up, they got they got set up. So that's the kind of picture that's being painted here by Zamashari. That fingers would be pointed at them as they walk by. Oh, those are the ones that the king was. Remember that guy? Those guys? Wow, they are pretty amazing. Man. Are they going to go back with all those horses? Or all those camels filled up? Whew. That's a sweet deal. Man, I wish I had a connection like that. So that kind of thing. So, And it's also been said that these are the, the, the guests of the king. Look at them. Wow, what impressive young man. What beautiful young man. How much... Honor did they get? How much honor did they deserve? Because the king himself honored them. And you know, when Yusuf said, don't you see that I'm the best of uh, those who show hospitality? So some scholars interpreted that to mean that especially to them, he gave them a lot of hospitality. I interpreted that differently for you guys. I said, I'm more convinced of the view that Yusuf is saying, I take care of all foreigners. And I don't give them second class citizen treatment. Haven't you seen how I've treated everybody? But their interpretation was no. Haven't you seen how I treated you especially? Right? So they, they and that interpretation is now playing into this. That they got this special treatment that nobody else got of all the other foreigners that came from all other places. And therefore they were the object of the evil eye. Everybody was kind of looking at them and saying, Wow, I wish I wish I got that kind of special treatment. Okay. وَفَضْلِهِمْ عَلَى الْوَافِدِينَ عَلَيْهِ Exactly that. Uh, that, they're pre- that that they received preference over other emissaries that came, other you know people that came. فَخَافَ لِذَلِكَ أَنْ كَوْكَبَ وَاحِدَةً That's why he was afraid that they would come in from one entrance. فَيُعَانُوا لِجَمَالِهِمْ وَجَلَالَةِ أَمْرِهِمْ فِي الصُّدُورِ So they would get the evil eye coming at them because of their beauty and because of the honor and glory that came to him in the hearts of people. Now let's talk a little bit about the, you know, uh, and so what would harm them would come and hit them. Let's talk about the evil eye for a quick second though, as it, as it pertains to this discussion before I read further. The evil eye can be looked at as two things. One, somebody looked at you the wrong way and said, man, I wish I had looks like that. I wish I was that tall. Or, oh, wow, they're, they're so, their beard is so nice or something. They said something like that. And the next thing you know, your hair starts falling off your beard or whatever happens, right? So one way you can think about the evil eye is, People looked at you the wrong way and bad stuff started happening to you mysteriously. Like you just, now you can't help but step on banana peels everywhere you go and slip and fall on your face. Or the evil, that's the mysterious evil eye, right? So somebody looked at you and somehow everywhere you go, something bad happens, right? But the other one is not so mysterious. Somebody looks at you the wrong way and then they're like, man, why, how come they get all that attention and I don't? If I can't get what they have, then they shouldn't have what they have either. Right? So I, if I can't pull myself up, 
let me figure out how I can bring them down, right? So the evil eye could lead to jealousy. Jealousy can go from thought to comments, from comments to scheming, from scheming to even action, right? So that's the second. When somebody says evil eye, it may not just mean I gave them a good old laser beam and now watch what's, what's going to happen next. <laughs> now they're going to get a red light every time they go in traffic. <laughs> Nobody has that kind of power. But when somebody has an evil eye and they plan on doing something with it, like they hate that you're happy. They hate that you're, you know, you, you're, you're, you're uh, enjoying yourself. They hate that you're doing well or whatever. They can't stand it. Now they want to do something to change your state. That's also the evil eye, isn't it? So the starting point is the same. Somebody looked at you the wrong way or looked with jealousy or with some kind of hatred, right? But its effects could be mysterious, the way that it's been understood traditionally. And it could be something that's a chain of a series of events or comments or words that the person initiates now. By the way, classically, it's also been said that you can get the evil eye from someone who loves you, had no evil intent. They just looked at you and didn't didn't bless you, right? They didn't say, mashallah, tabarakallah, or something like that. And say, oh, you look so nice. You know, you lost, you lost so much weight. You look so good. Next thing you know, you're obese. And that, that's been interpreted as they didn't mean to say that. They were that's just your your brother's proud of you or your dad is happy or whatever, but they didn't say mashallah tabarakallah and everything went downhill from there. This is the kind of discussion we're gonna have in the evil eye session. How does that work? And if that works, how does it work? What are the mechanics of it? Okay, and what do we understand from our tradition from it? Uh, but anyway, let's come back to this. Back to Zamakhshari. So something that would harm them would would hit them. Not necessarily mysteriously, somebody might try to rob them, spread rumors about them, whatever, right? They could hurt, hurt them in other ways. And Zamashari's rationale. And that is why he didn't give them the advice to go from different doors the first time. Because the first time they weren't famous yet. They weren't given special treatment yet. They were just some people walking in like everybody else is walking in. And that's because they were unknown. And they were completely anonymous with own people. They weren't a big deal. وَقَالَ الْمَاوَرْدِ فِي النَّكْتِ وَالْعُيُونَ In his book, in his work, Al-Mawardi says, فِيمَا خَافَ عَلَيْهِمْ أَنْ يَدْخُلُوا مِنْ بَابٍ وَاحِدْ قَوْلًا As far as them coming in from a single door, there are two opinions. أَحَدُهُمَا أَنَّهُ خَافَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْعَيْنِ So that means everything okay? Okay. أَحَدُهُمَا أَنَّهُ خَافَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْعَيْنِ uh, the first of them that he feared the evil eye for them. Because they were good looking, they were good, you know, in good shape. Ibn Abbas wa Mujahid Ibn Abbas Mujahid say this. Thani, uh, he's saying that it, it's another opinion has also been that the king himself, so the one above. Uh, Yusuf, or if they're thinking of the Yusuf as the king, right? But anyway, the one above Yusuf, Haysam, was a, he saw their number and their power, so he wants to, he doesn't like anybody having those kinds of numbers or power, so he, the king himself could get jealous of them and want to take hold of them, or be precaution that these guys might become too powerful or something like that. And some later folks have forwarded this opinion. I find that a very weak opinion, but that's been said. Now he's not commenting on whether he agrees or disagrees. Right? He's just listing, and notice as I read this, he repeated, evil eye, evil eye, evil eye, this one said evil eye, this one said evil eye, this one said evil eye. What's the point of a scholar doing that? The point of them doing that is to let you know they did their reading, man. 
So you Googling and saying, hey, you missed one. <laughs> you don't do the kind of research they do. Or have some appreciation because, you know, you, you can search it and read it and tell. But when what's a scholar? When they say these names, they know these people's lives. They know these people's works. It's as if they've lived among them. This is the kind of time they spend in their books. That's why there's a richness and depth in scholarship that I have a lot of respect for. Right. When someone, even if they propose an opinion, that's a novel idea or it's different or it's the minority position. The fact that they can demonstrate that they have a, a good view of what's in front of them. Right. And they're not in denial of that. That's a respectable trait instead of just dismissing it. Now, he's going to get to his position. What people have leaned towards, what they are inclined towards, to give the reasoning that the instruction of Yaqub to his sons to enter the door from a single gate because he was afraid of the evil eye is problematic for a number of, for a number of reasons. So now he's saying, I say that this seems to be, to me, problematic for a number of reasons. Hold on a second, Dr. Akram. Hold up. He mentioned some pretty heavy names up there, no? Ibn Abbas, Dahak, Qatada, Mujahid. At-Tabari. Didn't he mention some heavy names? Az-Zamakhshari. These are not light names. These are heavy-hitting scholars and Sahaba and Tabi'een. So how is he going to take all those opinions, all their opinions, and say, oh, it's problematic? Because the average Muslim would say, excuse me? You, you're going to say, it's a little above your pay grade to say that's problematic. Who are you to say that their interpretation is problematic and yours is better? Right? That's a reasonable response. The Sahaba knew better. The earliest generations knew better. The best generation is my generation, then the one who follows them, then the one who follows them. This is a serious question. How can someone disagree with a popular interpretation that even may be attributed to the companions of the Prophet? Isn't that a serious question? Like if we're going to talk about the interpretation of the Quran and somebody's offering a view that disagrees with a Sahabi, that's a pretty serious thing. How are we supposed to think about that? That's where I'm going to leave your brain teased because I'm going to do a live session with Suhaib on that subject. How do we as Muslims think about the tafsir of the Sahaba? And why is there disagreement after they've spoken? In fact, Ibn Abbas says his opinion, for example, and after that you find many differing views among scholars, not us, among them. Among Sahaba too. Why? How dare they? How does that work? How are we supposed to think about that? Does that mean everything is up for reinterpretation? Everything can be revisited? We don't have to consider anything they said? Or do we close the doors for rethinking or revisiting? Which, what do we do? How are we supposed to balance that? This is one of the things I hope to open up for you guys as I engage in this series. I don't just want to share with you what I've come to learn or understand. I want to share thought process. Like how do we analyze our religion? How do we look at our tradition? How do we think about it? Because the Qur'an is very focused on us becoming people of thought. More so than people of knowledge. You know, Allah criticizes people who don't think. A lot. Don't, don't they then think? Don't, don't you think? You know? So this is a goal of ours to kind of evolve our thinking or to make our thinking more sophisticated as an ummah about our religion, about how we think about these things. So hopefully I'll have a session about that I think tomorrow, before we continue um, on the subject. But anyway, so now let's go to his... So he says it's problematic. 
He said for a number of reasons. So he's going to give his reasons now. Number one. لِمَاذَا لَمْ يَخَفْ عَلَيْهِمُ الْعَيْنِ فِي الْمَرَّةِ الْأُولَى How come he didn't fear the evil eye for them the first time around? Well, Zamakhshari answered that. Zamakhshari said, well, they weren't famous the first time around. That's why he didn't fear the evil eye. He says, إِذْ هَبَطُوا مِصْرَ وَدَخَلُوا مِنْ بَابٍ وَاحِدٍ Generally, when they entered from a single door, it's not the people, because you know the interpretation is they were famous, now fingers were pointed at them. But other scholars didn't say that. They just said they shouldn't come in from one door because it's going to be, uh, you know, they're just going to get attention anyway because they're good-looking men. Isn't that what was said over and over again? Because they were still good-looking the first time around, and they still went through one gate the first time around. So why not stop them? That, that creates a problem that needs to be answered at least, right? The second is, gets more interesting. لماذا خاف عليهم في المرة الثانية ولم تصبهم العين في المرة الأولى؟ How come he didn't fear the evil eye on them when? Well, why would he fear the evil eye for them when they came back completely fine the first time around? ورجعوا إليه فرحين جذلين. They came back happy and joyous the first time around. You know, somebody comes back after getting hurt. You're not going out there without taking some precaution. Hey, let me read some Quran on you. We don't want happening what happened last time. So if something bad had happened, then you would understand that he wants to take extra precaution. But they came back perfectly happy. But you know, even though he raises this issue, there is an easy answer to that too. Because things went good this time, you might want to become even more precaution, you know, precautious and say, things went well, but let's make sure they stay well. Right? So that could be an answer to this criticism. But his criticisms get deeper. What's وَكَيْفَ يَنْفَعُهُمُ التَّفَرُّقُ عِنْدَ الْأَبْوَابِ وَهُمْ سَيَجْتَمِعُونَ عِنْدَ قَصْرِ الْمَلِكِ How is being coming in from different gates going to help them, benefit them, when they're going to all gather at the gate of the king anyway? Even if they come from different doors, where are they going to reunite? At the gate. أَفَلَا تُصِيبُهُمُ الْعَيْنِ إِذَا اجْتَمَعُوا فِي وَسَطِ الْمَدِينَةِ isn't the evil eye going to hit them when they gather together in the middle of the city? Where all the different countries, people, all the different villages, all the different ethnicities of people, if they're coming to Egypt for food, where are they going to all gather? Where's going to be the biggest gathering? The gate or the main head office? The palace, right? So if they're going to be united at the palace, this doesn't really help the evil eye because that's where the biggest crowd is. And that's where they're back together again. And by that, in his opinion, this is where the weakness of Zamakhshari's opinion becomes apparent. Meaning the idea that they were famous, that's why people would point fingers at them, and that's why he wanted the evil eye to stay away from them. Well, I think more people would point fingers as you get closer and closer to what? The castle. And when you're at the gates of the castle, and you're there, you know, at the palace itself, where the waiting area is, the lobby is, or whatever... Is that's where the people are gathered, so it doesn't really work. How come he wasn't afraid of the evil eye for them on the road? When they're going to pass by different villages and different kinds of people, and they're looking, uh, and among those people are people that have evil eyes and jealous people too. So it's not just at the gates that you find jealous people. The entire road is full of jealous people and people with evil eyes. Well, Khamis, innahum min baytin I love this one. And fifthly, they are from a family, a house that has prophethood in it. Who's the prophet? Yaqub alayhi salam. Maybe they don't. Maybe they deny Yusuf's prophecy so far, but at least they know their father is a prophet, right? They know that, and their grandfather is a prophet, and their great grandfather is a prophet, and they know all of this. They know all of that. Okay. 
فلا بد أن تكون لديهم صلوات وأدعية وكلمات تحميهم من العين والحسد Isn't it absolutely essential and no way around it that they must have words, prayers, du'as, utterances, phrases that protect them from the evil eye because they come from a house of prophecy? Shouldn't they have remembrances of Allah like prophets taught us, our prophets taught us the du'a for entering the home, for leaving the home, for putting clothes on, for going outside, for looking good, for getting married, for eating food, for finishing food, for meeting people. Like he, he taught us a du'a for looking in the mirror, for... You know, there's du'as for every occasion. They come from a family of prophethood. Shouldn't they know the words that would protect them? And then, so behind this, Shouldn't saying, I seek refuge of Allah, I cling to Allah from all evil, from the evil of the, the eye, from the evil of jealousy, from the evil of those who blow into knots. What's he saying by blowing into knots? He's referring to what we have. قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقِ the climax, the evil of the one who shows jealousy. So if our Qur'an gave us that, but Allah has given the adhkar to remember and protect yourself from evils from the earlier days. They must have their version of Surah Al-Falaq, right? Behind this criticism, this number five is something very deep. Please listen to this carefully. I'm adding this on. So you know he says, قلت, I'm saying قلت now. I'm saying. Okay, this is not what Dr. Akram says. If they come from a house of prophecy, protecting yourself, number one, will come from, like if it's from the evil eye, then protecting yourself will, number one, come from the adhkar that have been taught by revelation. And the remembrance of Allah and seeking refuge with Allah. It's such a fundamental teaching of our religion from times of old. Seeking the, the refuge in Allah. That should be number one. And if you want to take other measures to protect yourself from evil eyes, that should be, Precautionary measure number two. Like the security gate number one, the big gate is seeking refuge with Allah. And the secondary gate is some other precautionary measures, right? If he's a prophet, what should he be giving his sons first? Precautionary measure number one. Why would he as a prophet go to measures number two? That's the kind of criticism that's being raised here of that view. Was sadis in Allah Ta'ala dhakab anna duhulahum min haythu amarahum abuhum lam yanfa'ahum. Sixth. Allah Himself said that them coming from different gates, from the way their dad had instructed them, didn't benefit them. Let me, before I go further, let me put this to you in a different way. I want you to come from the other road because I want you to be safe. Right? And then when you came from the other road, I say, man, that didn't help at all. You coming from the other road didn't help at all. What could that mean? That you were still unsafe. Right? When Allah says, them coming from different doors didn't benefit them at all. One possible way of interpreting that would mean, if He wanted to save them from the evil eye, and it didn't benefit them, means they got hit with the evil eye. Because it didn't work. The idea of it didn't benefit them could be thought of as, it didn't work. Not necessarily, but that's one way of looking at it. But then the Qur'an would have said, it didn't work, and they did get hit with the evil eye. But did the Qur'an say that? No. But there's another, you know, not that he mentioned this, another way of looking at it is, it didn't work, meaning had they gone this way or not, that wouldn't have protected them from the evil eye. That would be another way of looking at that same eye, that it, didn't it wasn't going to benefit them from making them independent of Allah in any way, shape, or form. 
ولما دخلوا من حيث أمر حيث أمرهم أبوهم ما كان يغني عنهم من الله من شيء ولم ينص القرآن أن القرآن did not explicitly mention على أنهم أصابتهم العين that evil I actually did hit them فلا بد أن يكون في قلب يعقوب شيء آخر لم يتحقق there must be something else in Yaqub's heart that didn't materialize that is being referred to not the evil eye in his opinion it's probably something else it's not about the evil eye now what is it فمت تفسير الأوفق للآية I missed something والجواب عما نقله الماوردي عن بعض المتأخرين and the response that Mawardi has uh, you know, recorded uh, from some of the later scholarship, it doesn't add up. You know that opinion that the king was jealous of them? He's saying that doesn't add up much either. Because they're going to go in front of the king, whether they come from different gates or one gate. So if the king is jealous of them, then them coming from different doors don't help because they're going to end up at the king's palace anyway. So it doesn't really add up. Then what's the most appropriate interpretation, the most suitable interpretation of the ayah? قلت, I say, When Yaqub scoped out his sons coming from Egypt, meaning when they went to Egypt the first time, they were going into an unknown. They've never gone there before. Right? They don't know what they're walking into. They don't know what the king's going to be like. They don't know if he's just or... They're hoping they can get food. They've heard. But there's no verifiable sources, right? So they're just going to go figure this out themselves. He came to know that people are heading towards Egypt from every country, every village. And they are finding, they're finding safety in, from every road. They are finding that they're heading towards Egypt. So now when they came back, Yaqub is actually figuring out that Egypt is becoming not just the center for our hopes, but the hopes of the entire region. And if it's the case that you know, groups are universally gathering at this one place to converge, then it, the thought may have occurred to Yaqub in his heart somewhere, that maybe if people are starving and everybody's starving heading to Egypt, if Yusuf is still alive and he's starving, he must head to Egypt too. He must be heading to Egypt because he doesn't know what happened to Yusuf, right? He doesn't know if he's dead or alive. But if he is alive, since everybody's going to Egypt, then maybe Yusuf is heading to Egypt. Among the caravans of people, maybe he's on one of them. So he wanted his sons to spread out in the city. Now listen, فَإِن كَانَ يُوسُفْ دَخَلَهَا And if Yusuf did in fact enter the city, فَلَعَلَّهُمْ يَقِفُونَ عَلَيْهِ Maybe they'll stumble upon him. أَوْ يَحْتَدُونَ إِلَىٰ أَخْبَارِهِ Or maybe they will lead, lead them to find out something about them. Not that they went to for, for that purpose. By the way, I'll come to the, the explanation of this view later. I'm just going let to let you let this sink in a little bit. And then we'll ask some critical questions of this view too. Okay. And it's been narrated from Ibrahim al Nakhai, uh, that Yaqub said, Because he was hoping that they might end up seeing Yusuf 
by going through different doors. وَرَوَى إِبْنُ أَبِي حَاتِمْ عَنْ إِبْرَهِيمَ النَّخِعِي فِي قَوْلِهِ And Ibn Abi Hatim narrates from Ibrahim al-Nakhi'i in his statement, in his commentary on go from different doors. He knew or he felt that he knew that he will that uh, he will meet one of his brothers at one of the gates. That Yusuf will run into his brothers at one of the gates. And this explains the statement of Allah. This was a need inside of Yaqub. What was the need? If my son is still alive, maybe they'll run into him. Maybe they'll run into him. The need was what came into his heart of them stumbling upon Yusuf I'm chancing upon Yusuf when they diversified themselves in the city. But that didn't help at all. That didn't benefit at all. They didn't meet Yusuf in the streets of Egypt and its different areas. Because Yusuf is the minister of Egypt. And they have already gathered in front of him in the first time. And they come to see him every time they enter Egypt. However, this is the last thing I'll explain. However, he kept this a secret, meaning he didn't tell them go look for Yusuf, right? Because of a because of some some rationale that he understood. He doesn't Dr. Akram doesn't spell out what that rationale was. This is what I say. Allah knows the right opinion. That's Dr. Akram. Thank you so much. You can take the screen off. Now I'll talk to you guys. This is beautiful. Because it adds a dimension that I didn't talk to you about before, about this part of the story. Here's a father who's lost his son so many years ago, not knowing what happened to him. And not knowing is more difficult than knowing that he died. He doesn't know it. So somewhere in him, that hope and that terror is still alive. What's the hope? He's okay. He's okay somewhere. What's the terror? He's being tortured somewhere. He's in great pain somewhere. He's being oppressed somewhere. Right? And he doesn't know what the situation is. Look, if you get separated from your family for a couple of hours and they don't have the phone service isn't working and you don't know, you know whether they're okay or not and the weather's getting worse and it's starting to rain or it's starting to get freezing cold and they're not by the car. They're like, I need to go look for them here. I need to go look for them here. Should I just stay here? Should I go? You're all, what are they thinking? Where could they be? What they may feel? Are, are they hurt? Are this There's like 50 thoughts in your head because you don't know. Not knowing is torture. And we've been, many of us have been in that situation for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. Can you imagine being in that situation for a day, a whole day? What happens when a family member is out of touch and then they come back and you know, they come back home safe and sound. What, what was your reaction? Oh, you're okay. Huh, that's good. I'll go back to my PlayStation 4 now. No. Where have you been? I was worried sick. You didn't have your phone? What do you mean there was no service? You'd lose your mind because you don't know what's happened. Now, that's when you hold adults responsible. Right? A husband can lose it over his wife if she disappeared for hours. Or a husband disappeared for hours. Right? We're talking about a child disappearing and that too for ages that pain never left Yaqub the need to know I need to find some connection to Yusuf somewhere somehow is still there now I'll add to what Dr. Akram said this is not my own addition you don't have to accept it at all I do find this rationale compelling I want to add to it in what I can understand Allah Ta'ala 
first of all, you need to, I see it as Yaqub is, is a loving father to Yusuf and he's a loving father to all of his children. As complicated, as hard as it is to love these guys, he still loves them. So telling them to go from different doors to be safer or to not get the eyes of people that will intend harm on them or go back and rob them, which I talked to you about in the last session, is still rational. And him telling his sons, look, I can't benefit you from Allah's plan in any way. The verdict is with Allah. It's still about them. But sometimes you can tell someone to do something and it has a dual purpose. You're telling them something that will benefit them. But hey, there's another underlying benefit. But that benefit doesn't have to be spelled out because the last time you guys were together with my boy Yusuf, that wasn't good for Yusuf. So I don't want all of you together to chance upon Yusuf. I want you to break up. So even if, first of all, more chances of running into Yusuf. But even if you run into Yusuf, it's not going to be all of you that run into him that can overpower him. It's going to be one or two of you because I don't know what your feelings are towards Yusuf. I don't know if you still hate him. I don't know if you see me want to, maybe we should have finished it the first time. This time we'll make sure we get it done. I don't know if that's gone away from you, right? And especially because after Yusuf left, we learn in the Quran that the, the their hatred and their their uh, aggression was redirected towards Bin Yamin, which means that even the first one they're not over. Man, it's Yusuf 2.0. So what if they run into Yusuf 1.0? Man, that's not solved yet either, because they're the ones who came up with Uqtulu Yusuf, right? And they, you know, ajma'u, they they unified on that. Yaqub is wise to understand also that perhaps if they are all together, group mentality turns you into a mob. But if they're broken up and run into Yusuf, they might be more rational. The one or two that run into him might have a softer heart. And they might not give into the larger pressure because they can't give into that larger pressure. Now, there's another rationale. The other reasoning is this time they have Binyamin with them. And they have a reason to keep Binyamin safe. Right? And they have a reason to keep Binyamin safe, not just this year, every single year, because they're not going to get Kaid. And if Binyamin is safe, guaranteed, and they run into Yusuf, they can't kill Yusuf. They can't hurt Yusuf. Because who will testify? Who will tell dad what they did? Binyamin will, because he's already under insurance. <laughs> he's already safe. This trip, he has someone on this journey that he can absolutely trust the younger son. Right, so and that is that becomes kind of a witness against them. Like nowadays, people talk about police and the body cam. Right, the younger son is a body cam this time, possibly. So even if they run into Yusuf, Yusuf will be safe because of Binyamin's presence, because his safety is guaranteed. You understand? Then the question arises: Why not just tell his sons, uh, you know, look for Yusuf? Well, there are two obvious reasons. Why would he want the people who did did away with Yusuf to look for Yusuf at this occasion, at this point? And second of all, right now, if he says, go look for Yusuf too, they'd say, this old man has lost his mind. Remember, he's crazy. He wants us to go from different doors so we can look for Yusuf. Dad, can you just make sense for him? They would dismiss his advice. They wouldn't listen to him if he brought up what? Yusuf, you know, sometimes you have to understand the psychology of your children, your family members, and you, if you want to convince them to do something, you better know what to say and you better really know what not to say. Because some of your kids, just because you said a certain word, they say, now I won't do it. I was going to do it, but since you brought that up, now I won't do it. I don't care how much trouble I get into, I will not do it. 
right? So if you say certain words, it triggers them to want to become disobedient. What's a trigger that angers these young men? Yusuf's mention. Why would the wise father mention Yusuf by name? He would not, and he's already agitated them by mentioning Yusuf in this conversation when he said, I should trust you with, you know, Binyamin, like I trusted you with Yusuf. Hasn't that already come up in an aggressive context? So he's not mentioning that. So he's getting them to go from different doors for their own benefit. But his heart has not let go of the need to maybe chance upon Yusuf again. And it's the most logical, profound thing. Why? Think about this. If Yusuf is alive, he's out. He's not in this town. He's not in the town in, in Canaan. Because if he was in Canaan, I would have found him. He's in some other village, some other city, some other country. I don't know where. There's no way to engage in an investigation of all those places. But Allah has made a plan where all those places are starving and people from all those places are converging where? In Egypt. So even if we don't run into Yusuf, we we'll might run into, you know what's called degrees of separation? We might run into someone with one degree of separation from Yusuf. Somebody might come up to these guys and say, hey, you look like a lot, a lot like my best friend Yusuf. Are you guys related? It could happen. Or it could be, are you guys from Canaan? I know someone from Canaan. Could that happen? Like just the, that mention might happen and it might lead to an actual investigation, an actual clue to find Yusuf salam. This is the best shot he'll get. And it's so powerful that Yaqub salam, as sad as he is for the loss of Yusuf salam, as broken up as he is, he will do anything he can, whatever's in his capacity, to try to reunite. And there's multiple purposes. He's not hurting his you know, his sons, the sons that have gone the wrong way, but even though they have some good in them, they're providing for the family, they're taking responsibility, they're not entirely evil, but they have that evil streak in them of that jealousy they had. He's not going to provoke that jealousy and get them to do something good without them realizing it. And in that is a profound wisdom that we learn from Yaqub Sometimes you have difficult members in your family and you can get them to do good things. Good things that they otherwise don't want to do. You just don't let them know that they're doing it. <laughs> you just give them advice that's got two dual purposes. It benefits them, but they would hate it if it benefits somebody else. There are people like that, right? So you give them advice that benefits them, but you have to code it in a way that it will end up benefiting someone else without them getting wind of it. Because if they find out that it benefits someone else, they'll say, forget it, I don't want to benefit. Because if I benefit, they'll benefit, and it hurts me when they benefit. So I'm not doing it. And he's a, he, you know, you would call it a psychologist nowadays. He understands their psyche and what triggers them or what makes them aggressive and uncooperative. And he crafted this beautiful advice to them about coming from different doors that addresses their safety concerns, that may address the evil eye, that also addresses the hope of a father who's lost a beloved son. He's got all of that packaged in. And by the way, later on, it's going to open up. He's actually going to have the courage to say, go look for Yusuf and his brother. But we'll see why that change happened. He's going to say that later on in the story, right? So we're we're in this really beautiful part of the story of Yusuf alayhi salam. I'm going to say some um, last comments. I don't know if I should do this. Should I do this, Sammy? What do you say? Should I do this? Okay, well, you know, this weekend I said, I'm, you know, I'm away. I wasn't able to get football. I was traveling. And uh, while I was traveling, I'm going to show you something. 
Let me show you guys something. You know, I need sometimes just fresh air to think and contemplate and stuff. So before I should, should tell you what I was contemplating about, I'll show you my contemplation process. So hold on. It's coming. You ready for this, guys? Okay. This is how I contemplate with my kids. Oh, no, it's choppy. Okay, it opened up. You see that? You see that? That's me getting some fresh air. But anyway, while I was doing that this weekend, watch what's going to happen. This is crazy. That's what you call getting serious air. I'll, pause. I'll, let you, I'll let you take it in. I'll let you take it in. You know why it's paused? Because I cried like a baby. That's why it's muted. I'm not going to. I'll do the sound effects. Oh, I'm not scared at all. This is easy. Oh, my God. I could do this, like, without the rope. Okay. So, all right. That's enough. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. <laughs> so, here's what I want to tell you. We have gone through many scenes in the story of Yusuf Ali Islam, yeah? And we're in this, well, you could consider the last scene because there was, you know, there was him separated from his family in the beginning. And now we're seeing the process by which he's reuniting with his family. It started. That process has begun. It's not a one-step thing. It's a multiple-step thing. But the process has begun. We saw him end up in Egypt uh, and end up in a lot of trouble. And we've, saw, we've seen that that allegation that was made against him has been resolved. We've seen that he was thrown in prison. We've seen him also come out of prison. We've seen him start off as a slave and end up as a minister. So we've seen lots of different scenes and scenarios in which Yusuf Alisam finds himself. Yeah, But what's remarkable is this last, you can call it the last episode, the reunification of the family. This would be the... What we're reading now is the, the reunification of his family has just started, right? And it's going to go on. And this started, this, what's interesting to me is this reunification started in um, ayah number. Oh, my God. Um, 58. We're on 68 now, yeah? This, this, you, the, the story of they came, he recognized them, they didn't recognize him. Started at ayah number 58. And this reunification story will continue until 101. 58 to 101. Now we've gone through lots of different scenes, yes? Him as a child. Him in the well. Him in Egypt. Him with the minister's wife. Him in prison. Then him, the, the dream interpretation. Then him out of prison. We've gone through tons of scenes. But all of those scenes combined, 57 ayat. All of them combined, 57 ayat. And this scene of him reuniting with his family, ayat number 58, all the way to 101. 58 to 101. 43 ayat are on this one scene. Right? It's kind of, if you were to title this large scene, it's the reunification of the family. Right? That's what this is. But this one scene is the largest described scene in the entire story. He spent years in prison, it got a few ayat. He spent years in Egypt, it got a few ayat. He spent, you know, uh, his time as a minister, seven years as a minister, it got a few ayat. 
when he's solving the problem, the, the economic crisis. He's, reunifi he's reunifying with his family. It's got 42 ayats, 43 ayats. It's a remarkable change, isn't it? Because if you go by this logic, each one of those sections would have been 20, 30, 40 ayat. Then the surah would be seven, eight times bigger than it is now. Or this should be as brief as the others. But this one scene, Allah decided to really open up. Unlike all the others, there's an expansion that's happened. Because you would think from a story point of view, everything's been solved. The only thing left is the family hasn't reunited, right? And since everything's solved in such rapid succession, this last part is just going to get finished and then the story's over. But you're only in ayah number 68 and we've been discussing this reunification for some time now, since 58. And we're going to keep discussing it until we get to what? 101. There's a lot here. So by the time we get to the end, it'll dawn on us, why did Allah take this one part of the story and emphasize it in a way like no other part has been stressed? No other part has been stressed in the way that this has been stressed. I don't want to break the, the surprise for you, but I'll give you a clue. Because you guys, mashallah, you're so Islamic, you don't watch movies and stuff. So what happens sometimes is, there's a movie, it's cool, but the epic part is the last scene. And the last scene itself has a lot of tension and release and tension and release and tension and release. The final fight, right? You've, we're in the last scene and there's a lot of tension in this scene and then release and then tension and then release. He sees them, then he lets them go. He keeps it inside and the Yaqub sounds not listening and then they're going to come with his brother and then it's going to keep on pulling and pushing and pulling and pushing and that, that's where we are now in that, that last powerful scene. So I pray Allah gives us an appreciation of the beauty of this last episode that we are in that's not short by any stretch of the imagination and that we can draw from it something that benefits all of us in a way that will be pleasing to Allah Tomorrow uh, I'm going to have a session with uh, Sheikh Suhaib on opinions of the early scholars and the differences and how do we think about that. And then also we'll try to continue a little bit with the story. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ani wa iyaakum bil ayati wa dhikri al-Hakim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.